This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co-host, Nellie Bailey. Coming up... The amazingly prolific and groundbreaking black scholar, Dr. Gerald Horn, talks about untangling the racist distortions of history. A French writer and activist maintains that racism is baked into the culture of the colonial powers of Europe. And we'll learn about the deep connections between black people's religions on both sides of the Atlantic. But first... Erica Keynes is an activist and writer in Anne Arundel County, Maryland. Kane has created a program that brings black-themed books to children. She hopes to raise a generation of revolutionaries. My program that I run is Liberation Through Reading, and what it is is I give black children with books that represent them. So they're all black characters by black authors. The focus recently was on Harriet Tubman because of the movie, and there was a lot of discussion about equitable and rightful representation of Harriet Tubman through that movie. And the reason I started Liberation Through Reading was under the guise of Malcolm X, you know, one book could change a child's life or change anyone's life. But also, what we were looking for movies to give us we can simply have found in children's books or things like representation, especially at that time, Black Panther, the movie was a huge film. And then the question that I always asked was, and then you left that film, is there blackness in your home? Are your children surrounded by that? You know, what conversations of blackness do you have outside of being represented on film? And I think that is why I thought, to make a focus about Harriet Tubman and the variety of children's books that she offered that told a true story or a full story of who she was as a complete person. Well, what did the kids think about the movie Harriet Tubman? And how did they feel after going through the process of your reading and discussion? I have not had too many conversations with children that have seen it. There were um, some young adults some teens that have seen it who didn't really have the same view as the adults or didn't have the same reaction as the adults did. And I feel like that's because the adults have had the opportunity to have a longer knowledge of who she was as they went through the schooling. Most of the children thought that that was the right story. That is actually how it happened. And I felt it necessary to fill those plot holes with these books. And after, you know, there were some questions about how the Underground Railroad actually ran and then also what inspired her. And I don't think there was a lot of fixation on her religion and God. And I think Moses, one of the children's books, really makes that a point. So that was like a more well-rounded point of view that they didn't leave with from the movie. In the piece that you wrote for the Black Agenda Report book forum, you said that it saddened you to see the warped and shallow conversations that are going on in the Black community about 
representation. You say that there's a fixation on seeing ourselves without truly knowing or understanding ourselves. Yes. Coincidentally, I just posted a panel that Kwame Ture was on, and he spoke to that. I think it was like 1992 this panel was, and it had Elaine Brown on it and a few others. And what he said was, you know, at this time, there's more Black faces and white spaces, and yet we don't have the power because, you know, we've been tricked with visibility. And I kind of feel like that speaks to our moment right now. Surely we're seeing more and more of us in places that we did not imagine we would see us, but we don't have that understanding of who we are or how we got to that point. He even speaks to that. For every bit that we've had, it's all been reformed. It's never been even revolution, and we've had to shed blood. So to just deny that or to ignore that or to think that you've overcome that or moved so far away from that is just, he called it an act of betrayal, more or less. And I feel like that is where we are, where we are kind of doing things for the culture, but not preserving the culture, not understanding how we derived to culture, what culture means, how culture is an emphasis in most liberation movements. And so when we talk about representation, we leave these things out. We're just so happy to see ourselves where we have never imagined we would have seen ourselves. And I thought, I always talk about Black Panther for that reason, where people are like, this is the first all-Black film. And I'm like, has no one ever seen Claudine? But just this one in particular struck people in such a way, I think that we think that we've arrived and we haven't. And I think that we think that because we have such a misunderstanding or maybe not an understanding at all or a lack of knowledge of our own histories. Yes, nowadays people take films as a kind of point of departure, like Black Panther, which made millions and millions of dollars, but had a CIA agent as a hero. Right. And the anti-hero was a caricature of a Black militant. Right. And then you have to think about when our children absorb that, that kind of messaging, What does that mean? But also when I do these events where I give these books, because all of these books are free and a variety of books, um, in the two years that I've done these events, I've gifted, I don't like to say give away, I've gifted over 1,500 books of children, like picture books of black people, children who have not started to read all the way to freshman year of college, Toni Morrison's Love. Like we have that variety of books that we offer for children to come and take again. And I talk to the children about that, but I also make it a point to corner the adults and have these conversations about representation and what does that mean when we just look outside where the event is, because I hold these events in these neighborhoods. So when we look right outside, does that transfer? And where do you get these books and what neighborhoods are you talking about? The way my program works is I actually do like a a call out. People would reach out to me and ask if I would like to join or come out to their event and partner. And I would make a call out to folks. I have a list on Amazon. (laughs) I know I'm trying to work my way away from that, but that is actually the more accessible, the most accessible platform for me to be able to get this amount of books to children who have never seen themselves in this way. 
So when I do that call out, people are able to pick and choose. There's no book over the most expensive book. I think it's $20, but the books on average are $3.99. And it's maybe a list of 100 different books. And people are allowed to pick and choose whatever book they would like to basically donate to a child. And then once I collect, I try to get at least 200 so that I get a good variety of enough books that if I have a a large crowd or a small crowd, there's still enough of a variety that children can choose from. Once I get that, then we set up shop and people come and they look through. So far, I've done it in my area of Anne Arundel County, Maryland. I've done two events in Baltimore. I've been in Philadelphia. I've been in Brooklyn, New York. So, yeah. Sounds like a formula that's transferable to almost any place in the country. Yes. And then I also, like, people do, like, write out, because I can't, I'm not able to get everywhere, but I do encourage people to, you know, start this in their own areas, because it was really an idea uh, that sparked from a sales plan of a few of us to start a Malcolm X Day under that same Martin Luther King Day was as a day of action, a day of service. We wanted Malcolm X Day to be a dedicated day of literacy where we focus on that in that. But that was pre-Ferguson and we didn't get enough signatures. But each of us still found, each of us who were committed to that day still found certain ways to kind of hold true to what we intended to do with that day. And Liberation Through Reading was just my extension of that effort. You seem to think there's a direct connection between reading and activism, reading while young. Yes. I think that any exposure to literacy exposes you to different worlds, different ways of thinking, uh, seeing life outside of how we are essentially meant to see it. I think that reading opens your mind. I think reading makes children better writers, better communicators. And I think that's all necessary. It makes them better critical thinkers, which is something that I think when we we talk about the lack of political education in adults, it's because a large amount of adults are not really skilled at critical thinking because they're not wanting to read. And I think that's why I focus on children, because I think when we're younger, we read a lot and then somehow we stop. So I want to to encourage that and always encourage the reading because we have a variety of books from sci-fi to nonfiction. There's Richard Wright. So I want to always encourage, you know, there's a variety of things. And I think that the idea of, of them seeing themselves makes them gravitate to the book more. So I use representation as a tool and not as a, as a marker. Like we've arrived but more so as a, this is how we can get to where we need to get to. In many schools in Black communities, kids don't get music training or training in the arts, and they're relentlessly tested on their knowledge of what's going to be in the next test. But that kind of regimen doesn't encourage creativity, and it doesn't encourage critical thought. And maybe that's the point. Yeah, I do agree. I think it is a colonial education. I think it is purposeful. It's interesting, though, to be in Black neighborhoods and have parents say that that these are not books that's offered in their local libraries or at the children's school. So we're not even seeing ourselves, our children are in school the predominant time of their weeks. 
and they're not seeing themselves. And then they come home and there's not even like a library for them to be able to see themselves. And I want to encourage that. A lot of that is I have my own black child and I knew how hard it was for me to find books searching that, you know, not just the little boy, Michael Jordan, basketball books, but just a variety of books that are him, you know, of little boys that look like him, written by people that look like us, which is the other struggle, because a lot of these books are not written by people that look like us. So, you know, just searching for that and making something that's meaningful and impactful, I think that that's the difference. I don't think that schools are that invested. Now, Erica Keynes, I know your politics. We print your articles in Black Agenda Report. So I'm going to ask you, do you want to help Black children grow up to be revolutionaries? Yes. My actual goal really is something more on the lines of a liberation school, because I believe in those things. I believe in our ability to educate our own children. When I was teaching, I'm not teaching at the moment, but when I was teaching, I snuck in as much as I could <laughs> the curriculum. I encouraged this. I played Mario Kaba and let the children dance. And, you know, I let them hear the chants and different sounds of blackness and let them experience that in the classroom because I feel that that is necessary. I feel like those connections are necessary for internationalism, starting that as a home base for internationalism, understanding how we're connected in our own liberation struggles, but not just in our own liberation struggles, but on a global. So my intent is, yeah, I would. I'm raising my own in that way. I should hope he follows in my footsteps. And from your experience, how do you think most Black parents feel about the prospect of their kids growing up to be activists, to speak truth to power and confront the status quo? Well, my own parent is a little uncomfortable with it because, you know, the idea of the danger behind it, because, you know, I guess we were made to fear that, be more fearful of what would happen when you speak up than not. So I know that I understand that, but I also feel like that's why it's important for me at these events, speak to the adults, not speak to the children necessarily. I use these books as a hook to get communities in, but I have these conversations with the adults so that they're understanding why it's important. Because even if I'm not directly creating revolutionaries, I am planting seeds in you so that you may want to change maybe how you think and thus change how your child thinks or the environment that your child is in to change their thinking, which is why I encourage, you know, that's why I say it's blackness in your home. I encourage these home libraries full of blackness. I encourage blackness on your walls just so that you know who you are. As important as it is to educate and teach our black children, it's as equally important that we protect them. Across all genders, ages, we really, really need to start protecting them, not just from the dangers of the street, but the dangers of the state and understanding how that all manifests, especially where I am. I'm just hearing that Maryland is the highest incarceration rate for Black men. What does that mean for our Black boys? So, yeah, that's my takeaway. We have to protect our Black children. We have to love on our Black children. We have to stop punishing our black children, raise revolutionaries. That was Erica Keynes, 
founder of Liberation Through Reading. Keynes is also a member of the Black Alliance for Peace. Dr. Gerald Horn is a professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston and a phenomenally prolific author. Horn's scholarship has challenged long-held beliefs about the actual nature of white American settler war for independence from Britain. Dr. Horn recently appeared on a Washington Babylon podcast. He defended the New York Times 1619 Project, which examined the origins of the black presence in the English-speaking North American colonies. It tries to suggest that many of the problems the black people face have historical roots, believe it or not. (laughs) I know that's a novel concept to some. It's certainly a novel concept to many of these critics, who would think, who would like you to believe that the Constitution settled everything? Actually, that's that's the substance of uh, Willens's new book, No Property in Man. And, and it, it took Jake Silverstein, the editor of the New York Times Magazine. And I, I recommend that your listeners look at his reply to their critique, where he points out that, well, you know, I'm down with the Constitution, but I think it was people's struggles that led to conditions changing more so than a piece of paper drafted by slave owners like James Madison. I mean, I would hope that that's the ABCs of reality, but apparently not. Because these folks, they tend to see, like, the Constitution as a thing in itself, the past as a thing in itself. They're very narrowly educated. They don't look at Canada and ask the basic question, which is Canada was under British rule, didn't have the so-called revolution, but Canada has a single-payer health care system, that the United States aspires towards and when the so-called revolutionary countries uh, supposed to have the health care system that people aspire towards. Uh, Canada has a, a third party, uh, the NDP, New Democratic Party, that has a strong base in labor, a social democratic orientation. Wouldn't you think that the so-called revolutionary country should have this NDP? And so I think that ultimately uh, the page is turning with regard to history that we're entering a stage, I hope, of an agonizing reappraisal of the origins of the United States of America with creation myths tossed into the dustbin of history. And when that is done, I also imagine that historians will look at the Dominican Republic and ask themselves this question. Why is it in the 1930s that the dictator, Rafael Trujillo, who, of course, was no progressive, uh, as evidenced by the fact that he was massacring Haitians in the 1930s, And why is it that he opened his doors to Jewish migrants uh, fleeing persecution in Central and Eastern Europe? It wasn't because he was progressive. He was trying to whiten the population. And I think that's how you have to look at the way that the United States opened its doors to Jewish people as it made this transition from religion to race, which is the subject of my 17th century book and also the subject of my 16th century book as well. And so, as I said, we have a lot of work to do to try to understand this imperialist monster. And I would hope and I trust that our friends on the left will be in the vanguard of this reappraisal process. Understood. Are there any other points you'd like to bring up in closing? Well, only, let, I mentioned my 16th century book, so let, let me get the full title. It'll be out in a few months. The Dawning of the Apocalypse. The roots of slavery, white supremacy, settler colonialism, and capitalism in the long 16th century. Uh, As suggested, it talks about why we're here speaking English, not Spanish, how the Spanish were not very good 
settler colonialists. They tended to privilege religion. They even allowed the black conquistadors that they were Catholic, such as exemplified by Juan Garrido. And the scrappy underdog, the Protestants, that is to say London, drew upon a longer tradition, perhaps going back to the Crusades, a pan-European project beginning in the 11th century, where you have pan-Europeanism blending into whiteness. And certainly, if you look at the fact that England expelled this Jewish population two centuries before Spain did in 1492, and then if you look at the history of anti-Semitism in England, many of the modes of persecution targeting the Jewish population were just transferred to black people with the Native American people as you have this transition from religion to race. And so that's the subject of my book out for monthly review press in a few months. That was Dr. Gerald Horn speaking from the University of Houston. The Black Rebellion against the legitimacy of white domination rages on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. Rokaya Diallo is a French journalist, writer, and filmmaker, and a host of Black Entertainment Television, France. Diallo says white supremacy is baked into the culture of France and all the colonial powers of Europe. Unfortunately, the French never experienced a civil rights movement on their own soil. In France, we have a very different history from the U.S. because most of the struggles for emancipation took place in the overseas territories, in the colonies. So in the French mainland, people are not really used to see minorities mobilizing to just to tackle the way they are treated. So there have been some movements over the years, especially in the 80s in France, from people mostly from North Africa, but it has been forgotten. The legacy is not really here. So now today, people are understanding that something is going on and that we should at least start a discussion, conversation about race in France. People from the majority feel stigmatized and oppressed. So whenever you just voice the word white, it's seen as being very offensive towards white people. Yes, you say that French white people claim that they don't see color, much like some of our comedians here in the United States, only they're trying to be funny. Yes, they are very serious about it. <laughs> I remember there was a, a former soccer player, Lilian Thuram. He just said that white culture in Europe is dominated by racism because it has shaped the last centuries in Europe, race, especially the fact that Europe was at the origin of the slave trade, and saying that it was something very tight to the European and the white culture, he was instantly labeled anti-white. And it was like a major controversy, saying, oh, you cannot globalize, you cannot just put one word to label white people, white culture. And it, it was very shocking because it was just trying to speak about privilege, but it was seen as something that was diminishing the humanity of white people. And in something that, that was not understood, it was really misunderstood and it was attacked a lot in a way in, at a level that was incredible. Yes, French people think that because they are identified with those words liberty, fraternity, and solidarity, that somehow colonialism does not blight their history. 
Yes, actually, because it was far away from the mainland. The difference that we have with the U.S. is that, you know, all the oppression of black people is really is part of the identity of the country because there were black people before the U.S. exists and there have always been black people, native people on the U.S. soil. The difference is that France perpetuated racism overseas. So it was in Africa, it was in the Caribbean, in the Indian Ocean. So most of the people don't really have in mind those events. They have them, but it's like, oh, it was far away. We didn't do anything. The people who were in the colonies who did things, but it was it's not really of our concern. And that's what is very difficult to say, that it was a whole. It's like uh, things were decided from France, and they were spread all around in the world. And the other thing is that we don't really have in our TV, film, or literary production much traces of that history. Like, you don't have a very big film about colonialism, about French slavery. But that's not something that is print, printed onto French minds. So the French, that is the white French, have not had this national conversation about race. No, we've never had it. And, you know, it's very new to have that in the mainstream space. There have been some conversations. Like in the 80s, there was a major march against racism. And out of that march, the government created an anti-racist organization. But it was created by the government. So as soon as the government created it, there was no more conversation about institutional racism because why would the government you know, criticize itself? And the racism was approached in a very moral way, which was a matter of bad or good, but it was not a matter of politics, history, institutional, systemic racism. And that conversation about racism not being an individual act is not happening in France. It's still seen as something bad happening out of bad people. However, one of the major parties of France, the National Rally Mm -hmm. Party of Marie Le Pen, does talk about race all the time in very negative Mm -hmm. terms. Yes, it's a party that has been successful, uh, more and more successful over the year. And the thing is that, that, that they're doing very good is that they don't speak about race explicitly. They speak about Islam, and they say maybe Islam is not really, cannot fit into our culture because it's different. And they won't say Arabs. They won't say black people. They would say Muslims. And saying that, they would say, no, it's our freedom of speech. We have the right to criticize any religion. And it's, you know, it's a very subtle way of speaking about race without seeming to speak about race. You see? And yet people associated with that party are now using the term the great replacement that alleges white people are at the verge of being driven to extinction. Yes, it's a theory that was authored by Renaud Camus, and he published a book about that, and he's convinced that people are coming from Africa, uh, like especially Muslim people, so from Northern or Sub-Saharan Africa, to colonize Europe and to make white people disappear. And in France, it's only 7% of the population which is Muslim, so how can such a small part of the population colonize the rest? Without any power, they, ha- they don't have any power. They're in the lower classes of the population. So they, it's something that is very vivid in the far-right spheres. And you have many, like the far-right is, 
trying to make that theory uh, very mainstream. And in covered in in a coded language, they're saying brown people are coming to replace us white people. Now in France, it is a crime to incite racial hatred, which is not a crime in the United States. Yes, it's true. Yeah, here in France, if you say something that can harm. If you say something that can feed hate, if you have a hate speech, you can be sentenced by a jury, by a trial. And it's very different because in the U.S., you can say whatever you want to say, but there is a kind of counter speech in the public sphere. The thing is that in France, there is no counter speech. And it takes a lot to be sentenced by a judge. You need to, to say something crazy to be sentenced. How crazy does it have to be? Like there was someone who was sentenced because he said that we should deport Muslims. And there was a kind of coded analogy with, uh, you know, the Nazis. He lost his trial because of that. Now, there are similarities, striking similarities, between white attitudes in France and those in the United States. Surveys have shown that a majority of white Americans also think that they are the most discriminated against group. It's incredible. It's the same. Like, because if you have been dominant and dominating over the centuries, and you see suddenly that people are seeking more and more equality, even if it's still not equal. You feel like, oh, I'm being taken my privilege, you know, out of my prison. And I have heard a quote, I don't know who said it, but it's like, when you're privileged, equality feels like oppression. And I think it's that, that is happening. Because they have been so privileged that they can't stand just being treated in the same way as anyone. So the absence of privilege feels oppressive. Exactly. Because they're not accustomed to privilege. So that they have no other reference of living. So to them, just having equality is to lose a privilege. And they think that that loss is oppression. One of the ironies here is that France claims to have a special relationship with Africa. Yes, but to me, it's a colonial relationship that was not dismantled, <laughs> especially because the French army is still in African countries. For example, it, they didn't have any sovereignty. You still have that currency, CFA franc, that depends on the French will, the will of the France. So the links are still there, but to me, they are colonial links. It should change. Many Americans now know that black players, black soccer players and other athletes get booed all over Europe and called monkeys. So many Americans understand the racist underbelly of Europe. But in past generations, France was considered the place to go to feel free. James Baldwin said so. And we know that a street is named after Mumia Abu-Jamal, the United States' most famous political prisoner. Uh, So how do those two Frances coincide? The thing is that there has always been a double standard. At the time, uh, James Baldwin, Josephine Baker, Chester Himes, or Richard Wright were in France. At the very same time, you had black Africans who were discriminated against. France love black people as long as they have no connection to its history. It's the same way. If I go to the U.S. and people find out that I'm French, 
I'm no longer part of your history. So people are nice to me because I'm not an African-American, you see? They're nice to me because I have a French accent and I don't have any past agreement to settle with the, the country. And it, it was the same. And it's still the same if you know, a black American comes to Paris today. He will be treated as any other American. But if that same person says, no, I'm African or I'm French, now it's not the same story anymore because you're seen as being part of the French history. And it's the double standards that people should see because James Baldwin, for example, he wrote a lot about Algerians, the way they were treated when he was in France. And he, he understood that there was something bad that was going on. He wrote about um, Algerians. You write about the fragility of white folks in, or white culture, or white identity in France. Yes, because it's, it's an identity that is never spoke about. Like, you never hear anything about whiteness. So people from the minorities are really accustomed to hear about race because they have to deal with it on a very daily basis. But white people, they're not seen as a race. So whenever you say something about whiteness, you're seen as being oppressive to white people. And that's what we call fragility, because the level of acceptance of minorities for uh, conversations about race is way higher than the one of white people, because they're not used to that. They're not seen as a race. They're just the norm. So when you think you're the norm, it's very difficult for you to handle the fact that someone would tell you you're also a race. Yes, if white folks are the universal human being, then everybody else is something else. Exactly. They are the norm, they are the universal, and the reference, and all the other groups are named on the basis of whiteness being the implicit norm. Now, you spoke of there being a kind of non-white movement in France in the 80s, but what's going on today? Today, there is a big conversation about police brutality because many people, Arabs or Blacks, are exposed to police brutality. And it's not as many as in the U.S. because the country doesn't have the same level of gun violence. But still, and most of the people who die in the hands of the police are Arabs or Blacks. So there is a conversation about that and it's something that is going on. And today, there is also a kind of obsession about Muslim women, especially the women who were a headscarf. And the thing is that most of people want them to remove it, like to remove it, because there is this idea that if you want to be French, you need to assimilate and to look French, meaning to look white. Th those are the most like burning conversation that we have, that we're having uh, today in regards to race. Yes, I've seen studies that show that you're more liable to be stopped by the police in France if you're Arab than if you're sub-Saharan mm -hmm. African. Yes, because there is this idea that if you are Arab, you're seen as a Muslim, and Muslims are seen as, are seen as dangerous people. So, yes, there is a very, very bad stigma on Arab people, on people who look Arab, because there is also... You know, the argument with the colonial war, because Algeria used to be a French colony and they have to fight during eight years war to be able to be independent. And that's a very major national trauma in France. People are still angry because of the loss of Algeria, because there were many French who used to live there. So that's something that's very present in the French collective imagination. 
And how much collaboration or solidarity is there between non-whites in France in common struggle against racism? There is a sense of belonging because we grew up together. We grew up as like I've grown up with people from Asia, from North Africa. And I started a podcast with a friend of mine whose parents are originally from Cambodia and China. So we speak to about race, you know, together. But at the same time, there are also some tensions between the groups, especially because there is in North Africa, in Arab Africa, there is a history of anti-blackness. So it's something that you can find here in the French minority. There are some tensions and some racism, some race issues that we need to address. So... It's ambivalent. It's like we stand together, but at the same time, we need to deal with our own issues, the issues that are within the minority communities. Because most of the mainstream feminist movements are very white. And those last year, there have been a movement to try to address the concerns of women from the minorities, Muslim women, black women, Asian women, trying to make it more intersectional. So that's something that we're working on. And I feel like there are more and more minority women's voices that are trying to, to voice a very specific concern. But I would guess that they come up against the same kind of resistance as black and brown people do in every conversation about race in France. Of course, there is this idea that those women are labeled being divisive, like you divide the fight, we should stand together. And they're like, no, because if there is racism against me, authored by another woman, I can't stand with her. So it's something that is being criticized, but at the same time, as long as it's criticized, it means it has an impact. So to me, it's not that negative. So so-called progressive white women in France are just as uncomfortable with race as in the United States. They are, and some of them are really patronizing. They want women to look feminist in the way they have decided it is feminist. So, for example, they're like, oh, you cannot be a feminist if you wear a headscarf. If you are Muslim and you wear a headscarf because you're covered, so you're not free. And you hear that a lot, like... They're not free, we need to free them, and we need to speak on their behalf because they're not able to free themselves by their own will. And it's like those, this idea of minority women, women having agency is something that is very difficult to make it understand by the majority. So it's the same as in the U.S. You have white feminists who have still a lot to learn about race. That was French activist and journalist Rokaya Diallo. Eziaku Wakocha observes intimate connections between black people's religious practices in Africa and the Western Hemisphere. Wakocha has earned a Ph.D. in Africana Studies from the University of Pennsylvania, and she's studying for her master's degree in theology at the Harvard Divinity School. When we're studying Black Atlantic religions, some people say Black Atlantic or African diasporic religions, it is important that we understand that when people are talking about religious and material culture, like again, when we think about what's the items, the sacred items, the things that are helping us practice these religious beliefs, it's important to know that these ideas about knowledge production has always been used in African diasporic religions. So what I mean by that, I'm trying to address how these religious rituals have affected the interactive learning environment 
in these aftermath or religious practices. And so much so that it's important that we need to focus on how these social connections affect these behaviors, feelings, and beliefs of people who practice the religion. Well, what does that mean in terms of everyday life and the anxieties and aspirations Mm. that people have here in Black America? Yeah, so basically that means that the people's lived experiences and people's lived practices, these religious traditions are part of their everyday ethos. So what do I mean by that? I mean that when you wake up in the morning, there are people that are Christian that will get on their knees and, th- and thank God and go about their day. So what are they doing? They're centering themselves, their Bible, and then they're moving on. Well, in African diasporic religious traditions, they might light a candle to their altar, on their altar, and then continue to do that and continue to move on through the day. Or they might wear a particular outfit or dress that connects with the divine. So for my work, I study Haitian religion, so Haitian Bodu. I follow this one woman whose name is Mambo Mode who practices in both Jacksonville, Haiti, and in Boston, Massachusetts. So what is interesting about her is that the use of dress is important in her way of connecting with the divine and her community. So what she does is that she creates these spiritual dresses that she uses in ceremony, and then sometimes also she also wears this to go to church, to Catholic church, to Catholic church, or like when she she uses to go to work. So again, these religious dresses that can be used inside the, these, these ceremonial and uh, religious practices can be used outside. So again, if you're thinking about like the cross that you wear as a necklace to showcase your faith, these ritual items are moved, are presented throughout the diaspora and, and again, is used as a way to connect with folks. So this is what you mean when you speak of your focus on visual and material culture. Yes, it's what you see and it's how you feel and it's what you touch it's really going down to like the senses. And again, when I talked about Sally Fromme's use of sensational religion, which I really enjoy her book, it's talking about sensory cultures and material practice. You're thinking about the idea about the senses, how, what you touch, what you smell, what you taste, how you see and the, and the sounds that you hear. So again, I, I go back to the Christian text or Christian ethos. Like if you go think about black Christians, sometimes they'll play gospel music and that helps them align themselves throughout the day. I've seen people play gospel music while they're working. Well, when you're playing gospel music, the sound of faith affects how you're even concentrating on your work. So again, when we're thinking about these works that being in, in, in everyday, we're looking at how these tools and rituals are affecting people's everyday lives. Yes, many of us see that clearly in what some of us think of as exotic and even flamboyant religions and religious mm. practices such as Vodun in Haiti or Santeria, but you see aspects of that same thing in Black Baptists. Oh, yeah. It's so interesting when you like, use the word exotic. And that's still the work that I try to do in my class as I teach religions in the African diaspora. And I teach a class on this semester on spirit possession in Caribbean religious tradition. These Vodun, Santeria, Condomble, you know, parts of Haiti, Cuba, and in Brazil, these religions are seen as stigmatized religious traditions, and we don't necessarily put them at the, at the same canon or conversation with Christianity, Buddhism, and Judaism. And it's not only is it not fair, but when we do this, it's definitely racialized, it's stigmatized, and we see these African diasporic religious traditions as others. And that strips away the unique, rigorous understanding that we can learn 
about these religious traditions. And again, how there's a number of people that are practicing the tradition, not only in the Caribbean, but also the U.S. And you even have a book, one of your favorites, that speaks of religion mm -hmm. in the kitchen, religion in cooking, yes. and in talking. Yes. Alyssa Perez's work on religion in the kitchen is, is possibly one of my favorite books at this moment. What I really like about this book, so whereas I work on fashion and how that affects like ceremonies, she really takes her time to think about the preparation of cooking and how when you're cooking for the divine, you're not just you're not making this food just for any ways. There's ways that you have to cut the chicken. There's ways that you have to prepare. There's conversations that you're having about what the divine is making. And few scholars have paid attention to religious traditions, even in the Midwest. Again, when we think about African diaspora religious traditions, we're thinking about sometimes these broader, these main places where we see like Caribbean and Black people are at like New York, Miami. And what she's focusing on is like the site of Chicago. And that's, again, that's a, a fascinating location because you have not seen Black Atlantic traditions as being practiced in Chicago. Well, do you think most Black Baptists, and that's the biggest Black denomination in the United States, see themselves mm -hmm. as part of the Atlantic diasporic tradition? They might not see themselves as part of it, but they are. I think that what makes the African diaspora so great is that we are multifaceted. We have different types of beliefs, and these beliefs provide different communities, and they provide complex conversations. And when we think about Black people, we know Black people are not a monolith. So why can we believe that our religious practices are not monoliths as well? And so, again, when we think about African diasporic religions, this helps, helps us think about these, these complexities, these nuances about not only a meta-divine, but then also these intermediaries, like these spirits that have impacted how people are engaging with their day to day. So again, what the Baptists might call the Holy Ghost, Haitian Vodou might call that uh, Dambala or Ogu or Ezli Freda. So again, people have different ways of connecting and talking about the divine. And again, when we're thinking about the visual material culture, there are different tools and strategies that help them connect with the divine as well. And clearly, you think this Atlantic diasporic culture, religions, are liberatory. Oh, yes, most definitely. What I like about Black Atlantic religions is that, by its essence, it's a religion of resistance. And we think about Haitian Vodou, and you think about the story about the origin of the Haitian Revolution. People will talk about the story of Bois Caiman. And this is where, right before the Haitian Revolution began, there was a number of, at that time, enslaved Haitians, I think it was August 14th, 1791, where um, enslaved came um, and gathered into, into the woods, and they swore an oath that they were no longer being enslaved, and they were no longer be under the French, and they were fighting against the French. Well, not only did they make this pact, they also called on the divine, and that was Ogu, which is a god of war, Esli Danto, which is a goddess and protectress of women and lesbians. And she's a warrior goddess, a mother goddess warrior. And so they called on the spirit to help them, aid them into the revolution. So by its ethos, the divine is part of how people imagine themselves as free. So whereas like the civil rights movement, people were calling on the notion of using Christianity in Black and Latin traditions, especially in Haitian Vodou, this is the same thing. So Black people in all forms of self have used religion to help and think through liberatory practices. And I'll be political or by religion itself. 
in a sense, you also minister in a way to a different kind of congregation. You're a spare time hip hop and pop cycle instructor. <laughs> yes, I am. I take pride in making sure I have a self care. I practice self care. I love the idea of self care as not just the idea that is relegated on just yourself, but also it's a part of the collective. This is something that I had a conversation with Angela Davis about, about the idea that self-care is not just about this neoliberal say for you to think about yourself as an individual, but it's a collective self-care. So I work at this studio, this Black-owned studio. The owner's name is Deborah Williams. And what is great about her space is that not only is she Black-owned, her clients that usually come to her, her space are majority Black women, even though obviously everyone is welcome, but it's majority Black women that come to her studio. And these are women that come in all shapes, all sizes, all types of fitness levels. And what I do, I teach a spin class where I play like hip hop and reggae and Afro beats and dance hall music. And what I enjoy about that is that I am my own wildest dreams. When I was taking spin class before, I used to hear a lot of techno music and country music. And I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. And so I wanted to make sure that the music that I was moving to reflected the types of sounds that I hear on a daily basis. And I noticed that my class has been getting very popular because people are working out to songs that they listen to at home. And then there's a moment where I take the time in that class where I have this reflective moment. And I usually play like Solange, Cranes in the Sky, or I've also played the Black Panther, Kendrick Lamar, oh, All the Stars. Just to take the time to just think about the work that they did throughout the week to, to center themselves and then to be excited about the fact that the hardest thing about working out is just making sure they, they got up and went to the place. So this act of self-care is for Black women who have a lot of stress and anxiety and low birth weight because of horrible medical practices that don't value and understand Black women having pain. This is a time where we say, like, we are going to be focused on ourselves. We're not worrying about children. We're not worrying about work. We're not worrying about our brothers and sisters or anyone else. This is ourselves. I really enjoy teaching this class, and I really enjoy the fact that I can be a part of this movement of seeing Black women being active. That's very interesting, you speaking of your yeah. interaction with Angela Davis, who was, of course, mm -hmm. a renowned Marxist. Do you have a mm -hmm. reading list for students and community folks who don't practice or even believe in any religion? Mm. Whether people believe or don't believe, I think it's important that we understand how religion works and it operates. It's a part of like the, some of the conversations that people have on the day to day. And it's also around when we're walking. So for example, even in Haiti, there are the symbols that are used for the deities, like a heart. So some people can see it as a heart as they're like, oh, that's for love. And if you talk to a person that practices religion, they're like, oh no, that's for Edwi Freda. So I wanna make sure I put that out there that although people don't believe or they don't practice religion, religious tradition, it's important that we know that it's always around us so we can at least understand. And then, I'm also thinking about how learning about religion and belief is just also just fun. So I'm not going to give a book that's like another scholarly book. I'm going to provide a book that when I was going through my own process of just, you know, struggling and figuring things out and also writing my dissertation, I was reading Nendi Okafor's Akata Witch series. It deals with this Igbo girl who was born in the U.S. 
and then raised in Nigeria. So again, we think about this diaspora connection. She finds out that she has powers, but it really thinks about African religious traditions, what she calls African futurism. So that's no longer Afrofuturism, but African futurism. And again, what I like about that is that she talks about how sometimes there are people that pay attention to these religions, and there are people that don't, but it, it surrounds us all. But what I enjoy about it is that people are struggling. And whether you believe in some divine or not, they have a belief in yourself. And I enjoy the fact that she still had to believe that she was going to accomplish the work that she had to do. Obviously, it's a hero's arc. But then there was a moment that she said, no, I can do this. And so I think that these novels and these fantasy novels helps us imagine ourselves sometimes in our lowest moments. But I think that sometimes academic books maybe don't give us that, that type of work. So this is what I love about novels, and I always assign novels into my classes as well. It's important to know that these religious traditions, it shapes how people think about their world. It's about an orientation of these social and cultural decisions that affect people's everyday lives. And it is important that we know that these religious traditions are affected by the senses how you see, what you touch, how you smell, and, and then what you hear. These are all important in how you imagine the world and how you move through the world. There needs to be more recognition of the rigor of Black Atlantic religious traditions. And I'm excited that I had the opportunity to talk about how these religious traditions have impacted not only my classroom, but then also the way that I have not only talked to folks that are in like um, African diaspora religious ceremonies, but then also Christian homes and church as well. And not only is this practice a religion and belief not only oriented with the divine, there needs to be a thought that you have to believe about, believe about yourself. And again, my work about what I do in the classroom also affects how I engage this idea about a collective self-care inside the studio. It all intertwines. What you do as you work out affects how you're reading, affects how you're engaging with people. And it's important that you know that we are holistic beings and we need to help each other out. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.